0: We have started tonight a, a five-point um, uh, sermon series to follow, of course, the five points of Calvinism to dive deeply into uh, uh, the the uh, sovereignty of God in salvation. You'll just be patient with me while I open up these notes. <clears throat> there we go. So, of course, we're going to be doing this over the next five Sunday evenings. We'll be doing... Uh, the, the, the five Sundays, T, total depravity. Next week, unconditional election. The week after that, limited atonement. And then irresistible grace. And then perseverance of the saints. And then we're going to go into our series on the book of James. We'll start getting a book-based again. Uh, don't, don't, I know we're going, some of you are stressing out some PTSD not doing a book-based sermon series. But it's just going to be five weeks and we'll jump straight back into it. I promise there will be plenty of Bible. And uh, the exciting thing is, after this this um, uh, uh, sermon series, you'll receive on your uh, Hope apps a little green verification tick that says you have received all five shots of the va- of the uh, Calvinization, and you will be allowed in here. And uh, 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 others are welcome. You are, of course, welcome here if you are not a uh, a fully Calvinized Christian. We just ask that you socially distance, and you might even. Call out unclean every now and then. That would be a great <laughs> help to us. And of course, we're just getting Everybody's welcome here, as long as you are, look. Even if you don't call Jesus Christ your Lord, you're welcome here. We're glad that you can hear the gospel. Uh, uh, but in our in our midst, Arminians and Calvinists and people who pretend to be in the middle, everybody is welcome. And uh, uh, we're just gonna we're gonna be going through. So our five points are gonna be uh, following those. Uh, so our five sermons will be following those five points. But it's important to notice this is a a point of history here that the five points of Calvinism, uh, anachronized into uh, TULIP, are not five points of Calvin. John Calvin himself, he was a man, John Calvin, 1500s, he was in Geneva, he was a, a, a theologian and he reformed uh, the church largely and systematized it and put it into uh, headings of doctrine in his book, The, the, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He, he wrote his first edition of that when he was 21. Ouch, if you're that old and you've done nothing like me compared to Calvin, it hurts. Uh, but he revised it throughout all his life. He was a, an amazing theologian. However, the five points of Calvinism, as they've been called, are not his top five points of theology or even a fair summation of his whole theology, nor do we even do series like this because we care about dead guys from the 1500s and want to want to jump on his team. We study it because we believe that what is nicknamed Calvinism is a biblical doctrine. That's why we're going to be doing this. In fact the five points of Tulip were not even five points that were invented by the Calvinistic or reformed churches to put forward helpful theology. In fact it was sort of a response to a response. Jacob Arminius, who the Arminians take their name from, you guys can just take the, uh, the offering whenever you want. I'm not uh, stopping now, so go and jab the people for their cash. Uh, I see you're waiting on me, giving me uh, notes. <clears throat> Uh, Jacob Arminius, who, who the Arminians take their, their name from, he didn't even systematize uh, uh, the, the response to the Reformed Church in these five points, really. He was a, uh, he was a Dutch theologian who, who basically was saying, I think that the Reformed Church is pretty much entirely right. There's, there's really five points, and he was pretty quiet about this. He didn't make a big noise about it, but there were five points that he was somewhat uncomfortable with in the whole system of theology. Now, once we start saying that even have to have said that much tells us that jacob arminius and the people like him are more reformed than most calvinists today i would if if arminius was raised from the dead and he planted a church in this town and hope church was leveled to the ground and you're all raptured or something like that and i had to pick a church i would probably pick his church over calvinistic churches today because he was so grounded in the reformed tradition that when he lined out the whole of the reformed confessions of faith all that he could really pull himself away from was five measly points. That means that he had my view of Scripture my view of preaching, my view of the church, my view of much of those things that are rich and and, and essential to Reformed theology. So we should not start saying there's the Calvinists and then there are these rank, crazy, historical heretics called the Arminians after Jacob Arminius. He probably had horns and a pitchfork. He had nothing to do with us Religiously, no, he was very much one of our brothers. However, he had five, just five little points that he didn't like because the Reformed theologians had started to push to clarify soteriology. Soteriology is that, is that section of theology that speaks of our salvation coming from the, uh, uh, the sotia, which means to be saved or to save. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, the Reformed church had spent a lot of time having come out of the Catholic Church and wanting to clarify for people, they'd spent a lot of time teaching systematically, putting out books. It was, in fact, a Richard Baxter who put out a, an entire sort of flow chart that was diagrammatic of salvation. And it had become a little bit wooden, a little bit overly done. And what we need to realize historically is whenever we focus on a doctrine, it has a habit of becoming out of proportion. Let's say that. Whenever a, a, a doctrine is, is uh, contested and people have to start arguing it, it sort of floats out of its natural place in the body of theology to the very top, becomes focused on and naturally magnified, and then it's, it, it's out of place, out of size, out of proportion in the whole. So that as we talk about reformed systematic theology, you're not going to find on page one of every book that we start with the five points of Calvinism because they are not central to everything. They are central to our understanding of soteriology, but we build to get there. All of that to say, while well, it is dangerous to focus on a doctrine like this uh, because it can become uh, too centralised, too essential to be called a Christian and whatnot, yet it's, uh, it's a... It, it, it is helpful for the church to go back over these doctrines to galvanise ourselves, to solidify ourselves on what the Scripture teaches, despite the risk of it becoming uh, out of proportion or caricatured. But anyway, that's what had happened uh, historically, and therefore Jacob Arminius's peers, his his students, rose up. They were called the Remonstrants, or the, the basically a fancy word for protestation they stood up and said excuse me governor because of course they were a state church they said we disagree with these five points they put forward a, an essay and then the the synod of dort was called in uh the 1600s where where all of the state churches came together they established their doctrine they re, they, they they responded to the five points of criticism with the five points of reformed calvinism they called that into a pretty little acronym tulip and they are published that and that is now available online for free i recommend you read them the canons of dort so that's where we are now we need to ask ourselves why this series before we jump into total depravity let's ask ourselves why do we teach and preach a series on calvinism like this first of all and you'll be not surprised by this there is no doctrine so offensive to humans so i like it (laughs) there is no doctrine so offensive to humans and so humbling to the natural pride of man. Jonathan Edwards said that this system of theology is so radically, offensively God-centered that there is no doctrine that you can spend time diving into that will push against the inner sinfulness and pridefulness and self-centeredness of man as Calvinism. That as you start looking at the the God-centeredness of God, the God-glorifying purposes of God in all of creation, and all of history, all of theology centers around him, there is no system of doctrine that quite pushes man down to his humble right spot of free beggars receiving grace as this doctrine. So it is always helpful to do that. Take a shot to our pride and glorify God. And yes, that means that I think that all of the other systems of theology that are not Calvinistic in their soteriology, every other strand of salvation theology, I do believe that the reason they hold to that is essentially when you get down to the heart of it because they have not bent the knee, they have not crucified pride enough to simply believe the clear, powerful teaching of Scripture on this point. That that is a a confession of mine. I don't think everybody is as equally submissive to the Bible. I think that there are systems that that are produced... And they go through exegetical hoop loops uh, uh, so that they can avoid the clear teaching of Scripture. Secondly, the reasons that we need to study this is because it is theologically expansive. This is the kind of doctrine that once you touch it, this is the kind of room, if you would, that once you go into it, the lights start clicking on and you realize that the Bible's theology the God that we worship and the gospel that we proclaim is more expansive and infinitely glorious than you have ever understood before. It is not to say that this doctrine gives you a full comprehension on all that scripture says, but this is a kind of, this is a kind of TNT kind of doctrine. Once you step on this one, everything goes up in flames. Uh, uh, the, the, there's a lot of young people today uh, and new Christians who are, who are coming into, maybe grown up in church, but now start, start wanting to cut their teeth on something a little bit more robust than Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me that, and it's all just faith, you don't need reason, etc., etc., there's a, there's, a, there's a little bit too much, I think today, of opposition culturally and whatever else against the church and what we believe, that simply believing what we got taught in a simplistic Sunday school is not enough. A theology based and centered around niceness and being just the the, 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 the kindest person in the room, that kind of stuff just doesn't cut it with people who are hungry for truth. This is why we have so many people uh, going and spending way too much money on unnecessary seminary college uh, uh, degrees and whatnot, not simply because, not because that in itself is unnecessary, pastors should be well taught, but because the everyday Christian is simply not taught the hard, enormous theological truths of Scripture. And so what I'm trying to do with this series is, is, is touch this doctrine so that for you, the lights start going on, going to give you resources to study so that you can be a robust theologian in your own right, because that's, would you believe it, the job of the local church. So that's what we're doing. the Bible is full of enormous, life-changing, mind-blowing doctrines, and this Calvinistic soteriology has a habit of kick-starting in you a hunger for those things, to study and devour them and detonate your small views of God. And thirdly, the reason we would study this kind of doctrine is because it is an anchoring doctrine. It's biblical, so there can be nothing wrong with doing a series on it. Let's just say that number one. But the very nature of this doctrine, not only is it a a Kickstarter for more expansive theology for the individual and the church, but it is also an anchoring doctrine for the church. Uh, Spurgeon wrote, and he said, I believe that this doctrine, more than any other, I believe he was referring to Jonathan Edwards, who also said this, this doctrine, more than any other, has a galvanizing, preserving effect on churches. So that in in history, you can just go and look back and you can find gospel preaching, Puritan planted, reformed churches that are now woke, LGBT affirming, liberal, gone, right? Not even a Christian church. You can go back and you can find that the first domino to tip is just a small apologetic sidestep away from the absolute utter sovereignty of God in all things, including salvation. That it has, a, if you can withhold that, if you can kill your sinful pride to hold that doctrine fast, if you can hold up the word of God so that it is so unapologetically god sended enough for you to hold Calvinism fast. It has a, a habit of having an effect that all other doctrines are held fast because that first doctrine does that first domino doesn't tip. So I believe that it is a preserving, a historically uh, foundationing kind of doctrine and therefore we start our series with T standing for total depravity what we mean by total depravity here's my few sentence definition what we mean by total depravity is that when mankind fell in Adam the fall into depravity and sin was so all-pervasive and strong that it affected every faculty of the human being body, soul, mind, affections, will, such that no faculty of the natural man functions in accord with God's commands. Repeat that back to me. Basically, what we're saying is every human being outside of Christ is bound by sin in their body, in their mind, in their soul, in their affections, in their will, and therefore, in their behavior. The fall into sin was a radical, core, all-pervasive fall. Now, what we don't mean when we start talking about total depravity, we do not mean that it is impossible to be any worse than you are. You are a, 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 a horribly sinful, corrupted, radically depraved person. This is called utter depravity. We're not saying that every human being is as evil as you possibly could have been. Every single one of us knows in in the history of your life, in the history of even the worst person's life, they could have been worse. There's more sin they could have done. We're not saying that. That would be a pretty easy easy straw man to tip down. What we are saying is that every person is, and we'll go into this a bit further, uh, but every person is fallen all pervasively. Here's another thing we're not saying. We're not saying that natural man outside of Christ cannot know right from wrong. So it's going to be of no help to the Armenian to say, no, total depravity can't be right because my neighbour or me before I was saved or my brother, they know some things are right and some things are wrong, so it's no use saying that everybody is just blind and dead in sin. Well, we're not saying that. We're saying though they know right and wrong, they have no power to do absolute, true, biblical goodness. But we'll get there. Thirdly, in total depravity, we do not mean that man cannot understand any of the Bible or make some outward show of convincing Christianity, even though they're not saved. We don't believe that. We've just finished preaching first John, and in there we saw obviously that the fallen children of the devil, unsaved, unregenerate people, can still appear for a time to look like a Christian. So we're not saying that. And fourthly, we're not saying that mankind are robots, that you don't make choices. That you are somehow just controlled by an external depravity, central computer, and you are not making your own genuine choices, but here is the root of the problem. What we are saying, first of all, is that your choices, though freely made, and though you are a free agent endowed with creational liberty, that is that God made you as a creature in his image who can make decisions, yet... Those decisions are always the sum total of your inner affections. <coughs> <Pardon me. coughs> Whatever choices you make, you are making on the basis of what you want to do. And there's the problem. That what a sinner wants to do always and ever outside of the regenerating work of God is sin. Therefore, we find in scriptures like Romans 1, and I ask you to go there... Romans chapter 1, we see outlined, uh, outlined by Paul the sinful nature and the relationship to sin and sinfulness that the sinner has. You can go to verse 22 of Romans chapter 1. It reads like this It says, claiming to, and, and what I want you to hear is, is the. That God is not just addressing outward sins and actions, but He is in fact speaking of the radical fallenness of humankind from within their nature. So He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In Romans 1, what we see here is that mankind's nature is at its core sinful in its desires and its passions and its lusts. So as we speak of the freedom of your will, we say, yes, God allows you under his sovereignty, he allows you to choose what you want to do. However, what you want to do is always sinful. So that what we don't see in Romans 1 is Paul say that God, in response to man's idolatry, God implanted into them or lured them intentionally and actively away from righteousness so that they were doing things that were unnatural to themselves and he'd implanted some kind of foreign unrighteousness and guilt that they would destroy themselves. We don't see that. We see Paul say that in response to their natural sinfulness, their idolatry, their thanklessness, God lengthened the leash so that their natural lusts and passions Were further fulfilled to the destruction of mankind okay so back in verse 24 we see that he gave them up to passions he didn't add passions into them they were already within their heart desiring the disgusting things that we desire and he simply handed them over the natural passions of mankind is bent to do evil there is no such thing as a good person in fact Outside of faith in Christ, there is not even such thing as a good act. We are not saying that a bare majority of things that unsaved people do are sin. We are saying that people outside of Christ do nothing but sin, even when they don't, donate a million bucks to a church. The underlying motivation and the overlying banner of that act is rejection to God and 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 promotion of self. The passions, the lusts are within every person. So do you have choices? Yes, they're real choices, but it's impossible to choose against the inclination of your affections. Whatever you love the most and whatever you love deepest, that is what you choose to do. You've never made a choice that was not a free choice. Now you might stop there and say that's not true, or accurate whatsoever because I'm here and I didn't want to be and my mum dragged me or my girlfriend dragged me or my boyfriend or my husband, whatever. Well, still, at the point of your decision, you had options that you could go and do what you didn't want to do. However, the other option, their week-long anger or whatever other thing you didn't want to have to face, you preferred one option over the other. The inward affection still chose and informed your will. Or you can take just a, a, a human example of of meals, okay, you would tell me that I sit down and every day I want a black Angus ribeye steak, butter basted, that's what I want, Uh, not well done, that's heresy, but, but medium rare to rare, that's what I want, except I don't do that. I don't follow my deeper desire, I have vegetables and fruit in disgusting smoothies that are bound up in a, in a uh, debased paste and I make myself drink that because, you know, well, well, that just goes to show, doesn't it? That my deepest affections are for the rump steak, but I'm choosing to have the vegetables. And even at that point, it is proving the point that I made. That the deeper affection is towards health and long life. The deepest desire is not, though, though, the, though the strongest are affection is towards the meat, yet that, that's all things being equal. If both of them gave you the same length of life, if both of them made you feel the same amount of health and whatever else, then you'd go to the steak every time. But all things are not equal. We are more than just a two layer black and white choice at any one time. We're more than that. We're in situations, environments, personalities, other options. And therefore, even when you choose what you don't ultimately, don't really want to eat, you are still doing what you ultimately and deeply want to do. So all of that, just to, just to analogize for us, just to show that you are always making decisions and choices based on what your heart ultimately wants to do. And Romans 1 tells us that the heart is bent towards evil, and therefore we are seeing the outworking of the theology of total depravity. So go with me to Verse 29. Uh, Sorry, uh, uh, to verse 24, and we see that he says, that heart, which is the seat of your choices, the heart that is within you, which is making all the decisions that you're making, it is, the desires of it are lusting after impurity, verse 24 says. He says in verse 26, that naturally it is filled with dishonorable passions. And verse 28 says that it is debased, Or another word is depraved. The heart within you, controlling your decisions, is filled, verse 29 says, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slandering, hating God, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness, inventing evil, disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness. Almost got through all of them. Stuffed up on the last one. That's the heart that, we're seeing, that is within the natural man that is informing all of their decisions. <clears throat> Therefore, they cannot choose outside of their heart's affection. So, so that, let's start talking about what we really are talking about tonight. The, the freedom to choose Jesus. The gospel is preached. A sinner hears the gospel. Jesus is put before them as a choice to make. And what total depravity tells us is that mankind in his natural state cannot choose Jesus. Not because he's not allowed to, not because the the ability to make such a decision is outside of his faculty, but because his faculty is bent towards preferring the sin. Jesus versus sin, I'll take sin. Repentance versus unrighteousness, I'll take the unrighteousness. Light versus darkness, I prefer the darkness. This is what the heart of mankind does. We see this in Romans 8 verse 7 where Paul says that the mind that is set on the flesh, and the flesh is bodily passions that he's just described in Romans 1, the heart, sorry, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It doesn't just love sin, it hates the God that calls it sin. It is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, which, which commands against those things that the mind loves, Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is because to please God, you have to please him from your heart. And that heart of yours is unable to want and desire anything ultimately other than sin. Naturally. Or we see in John chapter 3 verse 19, Jesus saying this now. He says, this is the judgment. Here's the problem. Here's the expose of man's nature the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For whoever does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. So we see there two things. The reason people do not believe on Jesus is because even though he's put before them in the gospel, they hate light, they love darkness this is a radical a core a foundational issue is total depravity and therefore a new heart right a new heart a newly created spirit with new affections and those new affections leading to a new will to choose and those choosing leading to new decisions and behaviors that has to be given into the sinner prior to them having faith and believing in Jesus, not as a response to them believing in Jesus. If God was to wait until you choose before he gave you a new heart to feel rightly, he would be waiting for eternity because your heart naturally will never change itself. This though, of course, is another sermon that we will get to later on in the series. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me until God brings him himself. This is total depravity. There is a scriptural record here. Basically, two more points and then we'll finish. Uh, There's a scriptural record that we're going to go through here and we'll start in Genesis 6. It's only one verse. If you don't want to go there, I understand. But we're, we're seeing now that going back to this point that we made before, so we've made the point that the heart which informs your decisions is what is ultimately sick, That's why every decision you make freely will never arrive at righteousness and will never lead you to placing your faith in Jesus, naturally. While we've said that, secondly, we're going to say that the the fall of mankind into sin is uh, belonging to and affecting every faculty of the human constitution. That's what we're going to see. I said that before, now I want to show you biblical accounts. So Genesis 6 verse 5, says that as God looked down on the earth, before he did what he would never do again, which is destroy the whole earth in a flood of water, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You cannot get a more black and white statement than that, right? I just wish God would be clear. Friends, he's clear right here, as God looks down with the x-ray into the soul to see every action and thought and every motivation in every thought, God says, every intention of the thought, did you know that? That your heart had thoughts and those thoughts themselves have intentions, God knew that and when he diagnoses each and every one of them, they come up with depravity. None of the natural intentions of the thoughts of the hearts of mankind are bent towards giving God glory and doing righteousness. Rather, they are only evil continually. There's three layers there. They're evil. They're only evil and there's nothing but evilness in there. And it's continual. It doesn't take a break when you sleep. It doesn't take a while to kick start in the morning. The natural man is only evil continually in his mind. But you can go back to Romans 1. Where we look more at this uh, uh, relationship between mankind, uh, mankind's nature, and the fall of sin. What we're really showing ourselves here is that it's not simply that humans are morally gray, it's just that we have a record of sin, right? Our sinfulness, our big problem is that we have an external guilt that Jesus needs to pay on the cross. We have an external record of condemnation that God needs to forgive, but then in and of myself, I'm really able to help that process along, or in and of myself, sinfulness has not pervaded. What we're showing is that, yes, it is your external guilt against the law of God, and it goes deeper. It is your nature, your desires, your heart, the way you think, the way you interpret every element of truth in God's word. So Romans chapter 1, 24 shows us Verse 24 shows us that it is the heart that is fallen. God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. The heart, the the affections, the desires are fallen. Verse 28, we can see the mind. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Now the decision-making process is included in the anatomy of depravity. The heart and the mind are both fallen and bent towards sin. We'll flick over a couple of pages, and yes, I'm assuming you've got a Bible in front of you, a solid Bible that you're doing these Bible studies with us through these five point series. In chapter 3 of Romans, you see Paul quote a whole bunch of Old Testament passages to make his point that mankind is sinful to the core. So, verse 10 says that none is righteous, no, not one. So there's the the reality that you are guilty before God. You're not righteous. You have an external record of your guilt, but it goes deeper than that. No one understands. Again, now we have the mind included in the fallenness. No one seeks for God. There's the soul, the heart, that no one is truly desiring in their sinfulness that they just wish they could give more glory to God. They wish they could leave their sin. Any inkling of that is a gift of the Spirit. Verse 12, we see that the will is affected. So our mind, how we think, our heart, how we feel, and our will, how we make decisions, our motivations is also turned away. It says, all have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does the good, not even one. The decision-making faculty is fallen. The will is depraved verse 13 through 16 you see the actions and affections okay you see that they are throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive so now it's going beyond the internal makeup into our actions of our body our throats an open grave the tongues are deceived the the asp venom is on their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood so he's gone top to bottom here Your lips down to your toes. The whole lot of you is corrupted and using all of your faculties to sin. (coughs) Verse 16, in their paths are ruin and misery. Then he says again, the, the mind that he gets back to in verse 17 and 18. The way of peace they have not known. They don't even know what it means to live at peace with God and with each other. Filled to the brim with iniquity is mankind by nature. 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The way they think is never taking into account God's righteous standards and his sovereignty. Mankind does not naturally do that. And the Proverbs tell us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You can't tell me that you can have enough wisdom to have faith in Jesus Christ, to reject your passions and your sins, leave them behind, cling to the Saviour that has been promised from the Old Testament. You can't do all that when you still haven't even the beginning of wisdom. You need a God-given mind, heart, desires. You need to be born again before you can believe. There is no part, therefore, of the human constitution that is still in line with God's commands. It was not a partial fall. It is not as if within each of us we can find and, and the job of the evangelist is to just sort of tickle up the, the one little part within you, the island of righteousness Martin Luther liked to laugh about. It's not as if there's one little piece of righteousness in you that is not corrupted and all I have to do before the, before the humanists, before the pagans, before the other religions get to it and corrupt it, I've got to get to it with the gospel and work up enough will in that part of you to come to Christ. No. We are like Ezekiel pictures, preaching to a valley of dead, sun-dried, dusty, dismembered bones. God does all of the work because we are radically corrupted and depraved. Titus 1:15, therefore, says, Titus 1, verse 15, if you're wanting to write it down. He says, because this is Paul writing to Titus, speaking particularly of false teachers, he's saying, When somebody is corrupted in the core. Though they're trying to be a teacher of God's word, though they're trying to lead in the church, though they're trying to take a, a sway of God's people, if somebody is corrupted down to the core, they are impure, everything they touch is impure. Right? Not ceremonially as if you've got to sanitize desks after your unregenerate friend has sat down. Nothing like that. What we mean is that even when they engage in religious activities, Even when the depraved man lifts his hands up and sings worship to God, that act will not be received as good outside of the fact that he is in active rebellion to God. Everything they touch is impure. Verse 15 says, To the pure, all things are pure. How freeing it is for a Christian to be able to go and, and eat, the, eat the, the food, whatever it is, drink whatever drink it is, enjoy whatever activity it is, as long as it is not explicitly li- uh, outlawed by Scripture, uh, wear whatever uh, uh, fabric of clothing, go to whatever part of the world, uh, rub up shoulders against whatever types of people, go and sit with drunkards and sinners, we are not being defiled from the outside because we are made righteous by God. Therefore, everything to us is pure. However, if you're impure, he says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They can't do a single good deed before God. And they know it. So, we've made the point that the, the, the fall into sin included... Our choices and our, uh, sorry, included our affections. Therefore, when we speak of our will, we are speaking of a will that is in bondage to sin. You're only ever choosing to do what your heart wants to do and your heart always wants to sin. Then we've branched out from that and shown that the mind, the heart, the will, the affections, the body and the, dis- the, the behaviours are all included in the fall being plunged into sinfulness And then thirdly, I just want to show with a a brief few passages that when the scripture speaks of the sinful nature of mankind, it speaks of an absolute enslavement and death in and to sin. So look with me in Ephesians chapter 1. Sorry, Ephesians chapter 2. You can turn there with me. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see Paul uh, recounting the, uh, the, the natural state we're in, and then he goes into the amazing uh, uh, situation and status that we've been placed in in Christ because of the grace of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, he says, And you were a little bit sick in the trespasses of your sins. He doesn't say that at all. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, once, in which you once walked. Yes, you were walking. Bit of, a, bit of a zombified state here. You were dead and you were walking. But don't think that that activity, this is what some Armenians will try and say, that that walking shows us, well, it's not full death. There's some goodness there. There's some ability to respond because there's at least life there walking, Paul says. No, the picture that he's saying is that while you're walking, you're walking dead. You're living, but you're living in the grave. You're responding to things, but all you're responding to is the underworld of sin and not to the spiritual good of God. You are dead in your trespasses and sins in which which you once walked, Following the course of this world. So, that walking is not a sign of spiritual life. You're walking following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan and all his demons and effects. Whatever activity you are doing as a dead person spiritually, you are doing because the sway of the devil and his unrighteous schemes have brought you along in that current. You're really just a dead corpse floating in the current of the devil's schemes. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived. So this is, again, universal. No one does good, not one, Paul says. And here he's saying, we all once lived in this reality. No one is born not totally depraved. All of us have the same grace of God and salvation. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What a very bleak picture he paints of natural humanity. And yet you've seen that the the deadness you were in was not despite your will, was not despite what you wanted, was not despite what you felt would be good for you and desired, rather Paul says, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, in verse 1 and in verse 3 he says following the passions of your lusts and of your heart the death is coming from within and you are bound up in it this is a picture of death and not just sickness a sick person is able to go along with the doctor cooperate with the help given by the nurse take the medicine, sign the consent form for the surgery, give advice on how they feel and how they're responding. The dead person can do nothing of the sort. Therefore, we're not preaching a a Dr. Jesus that can come and touch you up. We're not preaching a cosmetics Jesus that can get you from where you are to finally cross the finish line of salvation. We are preaching a resurrecting, new creating Jesus who has to call people out of the grave and he does that by his effectual call, which we will study in the study on irresistible grace. We are preaching a divine, fully sovereign saviour. So that's death. That's what sin is painted as, is death. Slavery is next, and we see this in a great... Uh, uh, we'll just take one verse for this. John chapter 8, verse 34. And this is the part where, where Jesus is, is uh, arguing with those people, the religious leaders who are trying to put forward their, their lineage being born from Abraham, their lineage being Jews. They are not under this horrible, terrible situation that Jesus is talking about being dead to their sin and slaves to their sin. They have the spiritual lineage, so they think. But just as John says in chapter one of his gospel that it's not by the blood of your ancestors, it's not by your will or your choice or your efforts, it's only by being born again of God. So also Jesus is saying, your natural state is not, by merit of being a Jew, good. Your natural state is enslavement. Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, stop there, many people is jesus speaking of here because he doesn't say he's speaking of everybody he's just speaking of a group he's saying everyone who fits this category who has ever practiced sin that is every person but he's saying it that way to especially talk to the religious folk i'm not saying you're a sinner i'm not saying you're a pagan a, a gentile i'm not saying you hate god let's just say if you've ever done a sin then you fall into the category of what he says next. If you have ever practiced sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That even if you think you are making choices that are free from your sinfulness, even if as a sinner, you're gonna say, look, I'm no Christian, but I'm definitely not a slave to sin. Friends, little clue, that's the sin nature talking. That's your slave master, sin, that is speaking because you just contradicted the word of God. You want to tell me that you're not a slave to sin? Then just spend one hour, make it 24 if you can, but make it one hour without being angry, without doing anything that takes any glory away from God, without swearing, without hating somebody, without lusting after the flesh of another person's body or even being tempted from within to do so. You make it 24 hours or even one without doing any of that I'll grant this book is garbage, but that is an impossibility because the word of God stands firm, even if you come to me in approximately one hour and tell me you've done it. Let God be true and every man a liar. There is no one who commits sin that is doing it out of some kind of dipping in sin and then going back to their moral neutrality. Every man and woman who has sinned does so because sin rules over you, you're under its dominion Every act you do that you think you are choosing to do, you are choosing to do because sin is ruling from within. Therefore, the the famous saying that R.C. Sproul really propagated he said, You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. You don't get given the, the, the branding of sinner once you've done a sin in this life. You sin in this life because by nature you're a sinner. The spring of water that is bursting forth from within you is sinfulness and it takes time to finally break out in your early years. But nonetheless, it comes out eventually, your sinfulness becomes evident to all. Therefore, what we've seen is a radical depravity, a radical fall in the fall of Adam of every human being until they are made right with God. Now, this is just gearing us up to see the glorious redemption that Jesus brings. If I'm saying that you are dead, then Jesus is a life giver, not merely a cooperating helper. And if I'm saying that you are this sinful and every person is and you are so lost in your depravity, then the grace of God must be marvelous, must be majestic, must be, friends, infinite. And it is. The people who are totally depraved Can come to the cross of Christ once empowered by the Spirit to do so. Don't worry whether you know whether it's happening or not. Just come. And when you come, you'll recognize God is working in my soul. Just come to the cross. And where you see Jesus crucified, you see your depravity taken. You see your guilt punished. You see your sinful nature dead. And you will be made alive with Him in His resurrection simply by believing by faith. You join spiritually into his death so that now you're dead to the law. You join in him to his resurrection so that you're dead to sin and alive to God forevermore with eternal life that never ends. This is the gospel. I compel you to believe, repent of your sin, receive Jesus Christ and accept every word of the Bible beginning here tonight that we are totally depraved by nature. Can you bow your heads with me and we will pray. Father God, we thank you for the word that you have spoken. We thank you for the word that is a light in the darkness of our world, that is truth in a world of error. We could not have known you had you not condescended to speak and commune with us. We thank you for the revelation of God. We thank you especially that this revelation is is just so self-testifying and self-evidently true for what man-written book would speak so starkly of the human nature and do it so accurately, right down to the intentions of the thoughts of our hearts. Well, God, I pray that each one of us would receive with with understanding, with discernment, that we would be Bereans and not believe simply because uh, someone on a stage said so, but we would believe because we see it in your word. But God, give us the spirit of humility that when we see it in your word, we believe, we obey, and we bend the knee. God, I pray that if there is any in the in our midst tonight, whose hearts are still in this dreadful state, that they are still unbelieving, in bondage to sin, corrupted down to their core, I pray, Lord, that in your grace, you would give to them a desire to believe and receive Jesus. Not simply a desire to leave hell, for that is natural, but a desire to, to have and be satisfied in and obey and glorify Jesus. Would you give that desire to the dead hearts among us this, this, this evening. Would you give to them a spiritual life to be resurrected in order to be able to believe on him who saves their soul? God, we pray all of this with the motivation that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be glorified. And everybody who agreed said, Amen. Amen.